Uh, Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to James chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you pray with me now before we examine this text together? Father, we, would, we just want to take a moment and bow before you for your great glory. Specifically in that while the great ones of this earth show their splendor by how much they possess and hoard, by how much they consume, you show your glory by how much you give away. And so, Father, we want to Just take a moment and and praise you for being the Father of lights from whom every good gift arrives to us. Jesus, we praise you for laying aside your divine glory and taking on human flesh and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Spirit, we thank you for giving yourself to us so that we might commune with God himself. Father, you are worthy of our praise and we ask that you would show us all of your glories this morning as we examine your word. Lord, we also want to lift up what you're doing in the world and and, and so I I specifically pray this morning for uh, the Well of Life Church in Mineral Wells and Pastor Kirk Horton. I pray that you would fill him with your spirit as he preaches. I pray that your people in that place would be uh, edified and built up in their faith and consumed with the truth and the beauty of your word and deployed into a city that desperately needs to hear of the goodness of Jesus. Lord, we pray as well for uh, our members as they are deployed uh, throughout the week. And I think specifically of Scott and Renee Royal as they minister at Tesoro Escondido Ranch and Kerygma Ventures Ministries. Lord, I pray that you would use Scott in that capacity to show many uh, that they 
can be adopted sons of a good father. And I pray that you would pour out your grace in their lives and give them perseverance as they pursue your calling. And Lord, we come to you as a church weeping with those who weep this morning. Uh, We lift up our sister, Bobby, and the whole Moss family and ask that you would pour out your comfort. You are the God of all comfort and we pray that your comfort would be felt today in their lives. We pray the same for the Tiptons. And we ask that you would pour out your peace in in Luke and Ashley's heart and, and, and on the rest of the whole family, Father. We pray this for Pastor Gerald Tomlin as he grieves his wife Melinda and looks forward to the day when they will be reunited in your presence. Lord, we, uh, we pray the same for Larry Seal as he uh, had to say goodbye to his own mother this week too. Lord, we, we come to you with, with open hearts, grieving hearts, and uh, we just trust that even though this is not the way that life is supposed to be, that you are making all things new. And that's what we rest in today. And Father, I pray that that would begin in our own hearts as we hear your word. Change us into the image of Jesus this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2014, the National Football League decided to expand their coverage, their airtime on CBS and the NFL Network to extra games outside of Sunday. Simply considered, the move was designed to increase profits for the league and its owners, but not everybody thought it was a good idea. Mark Cuban, a famous cast member on the show Shark Tank, and also the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, questioned the move and predicted, and again, this was in 2014, that within the next 10 years, the NFL would dramatically decline in popularity. Quote, I think the NFL is 10 years away from an implosion. They're trying to take over every night of TV. At some point, people get sick of it. The NFL was intent on squeezing every last penny from its swollen viewership, and Cuban didn't see it ending well. Of course, he had something to lose himself. Uh, The NFL, as I understand it, generally has better TV ratings than the NBA, so the Mavericks were at risk of being edged out of primetime coverage. But he wasn't too shy to call out the rationale behind the NFL's decision. He saw it for what it was, unbridled, arrogant greed. Just watch, he said. Pigs get fat. Hogs get slaughtered. Pigs get fat. Hogs get slaughtered. It's okay to eat. It's okay to earn a profit. But when you get greedy, you'll end up on the chopping block. Of course, a lot has happened with the NFL in the ensuing years between political protests, a growing disdain for the the injuries caused by the game of football itself, the COVID-19 pandemic, the the growing popularity of streaming over and against traditional TV. The jury's still out, but Cuban's prediction may not end up being too far off. Time will tell, but if an implosion is coming, greed and arrogance, it seems to me, is going to be a part of that story. Hogs get slaughtered. Think about that for a minute. 
Hogs don't worry about the future. They just live in the present. They just gorge themselves in the now. They don't have any sense of value. They just fill their bellies. They don't care about anybody else. If you get in their way, they will destroy you. But eventually, hogs get slaughtered. You don't want to be a hog. You don't want to embrace the priorities of the arrogant rich, the fat cats of the world. Don't envy them because their judgment will be swift and their end severe. James, in this short biblical book, is teaching us to recognize the difference between the counterfeit wisdom of the world and the true wisdom, the new covenant wisdom, the real thing that comes from our relationship with Christ. He wants us to know how to live skillfully. The great ones of the world with their fine clothes and their sycophantic fans publish a picture of the good life that seduces the simple and catechizes the unsuspecting to look at life in a way that will ultimately lead to destruction. And James pleads with us to go a different way. So in this passage, James offers three warnings about the arrogant rich. Three reasons why these hogs will eventually be slaughtered. Three reminders not to envy or or to emulate these types of people. So notice with me in the first place from chapter 4, verses 13 and following. Hogs get slaughtered because of their smugness. Because of their smugness. Look with me at 4.13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is the problem with what, what these people are saying? On the surface, it would seem that these are people who are just making plans. What's wrong with that? Like, is there something wrong? Are you telling me that scheduling appointments or planning out projects or uh, making a budget or having a business strategy is somehow sinful? No, that's not the issue at all. In order to understand what the problem is, we have to understand the big picture of what James is saying in the context. So in the first place, consider with me, understand who is James speaking to when he says these things. Commentators debate whether James is speaking to rich people inside the church or wealthy people outside the church. And while I don't usually like to go against what uh, people say who have been studying the Bible a lot longer than I have and who are a lot smarter than me, it seems to me that James really isn't talking to either group at all. Whether or not the church had rich people in it or not is, it seems to me, completely irrelevant to what it is that he's saying. See, in this entire passage, James is using a literary device known as apostrophe. How many of you remember that from like your literature high school class? Okay, Leah is probably the only one. Um, Apostrophe. That's when a speaker or writer addresses someone who is not present or who does not exist for the benefit of the actual reader or hearer. So for example, when Walt Whitman, that great poet from the 19th century, Uh, wrote, O Captain, my Captain, he addressed it to Abraham Lincoln, but he really wasn't writing it for Lincoln's benefit. He was, Lincoln was dead at that point. He was writing it for his own benefit as he grieved and as all the other people who listened to the poem grieved along with him at the loss of a beloved president. Uh, 
This is similar to what James is doing. He's addressing somebody who's really not even there in order for all of us to learn something. Uh, he's, he's addressing these rich merchants and these rich landowners in, in, in chapter 5. But those rich people aren't really necessarily even reading this letter. It's really meant for all of us to look in and learn and gain wisdom. In other words, the point of what James is saying can be expressed in the words of Proverbs 21.11. When a scoffer is punished... The simple become wise. These arrogant scoffers, these hogs, are being taken to the woodshed. And and what James is doing is he's taking them to the woodshed, but he wants you and me to pay attention. Don't envy their riches. Don't emulate their ways. Okay, well, what are their ways? See, the real problem with these rich merchants, these people that James is calling out, It is not that they are making plans for the future. It's that they are leaving God out of their calculations of what the future entails. Look at verse 16. As it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. In other words, the reason why these particular people are worthy of blame is not because they're wealthy. It's not because they have a lot of money, nor is it because they make plans or even because they pursue a profit. It is because they are arrogant. They're smug. They imagine that they're in control of the future, that they can make things happen, and that if they plan well enough, if they're smart enough, that they don't need God at all. And James wants us to see that people who operate this way are evil and worthy of condemnation. They're, they're kind of like hogs, and hogs get slaughtered. It's possible, likely, I think, that as he's writing, James has in mind the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells about a rich landowner whose barns are not big enough to hold the produce of his fields. And so uh, this man's whole life, he's been given over to the accumulation of wealth. And finally, he feels like he's arrived and his barns aren't big enough. And so he tears down his barns and he builds bigger barns. And then he says to himself, soul, you've many goods laid up for many years. You're not even that old. Like relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And he like sits back and he looks out at everything that he owns. And he says, man, this is going to be great. And, And Jesus says, you fool." Because this very night, your soul is going to be required of you. See, what was his problem? He, he's a hog. Smugly assuming that the largesse of the present was all he needed and, and thinking nothing of a future in which he would be held to account. Hogs get slaughtered. Friends, here's what James wants each of us to know. First of all, life is short. Life is short. I mean, we all know this. But look at what he says in verse 14. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Ask anyone of an advanced age. They will tell you life is short. It's gone before you know it. The second thing he wants us to know is that the future lies outside of our control. Haven't we seen that to be the case? I mean, how many, think about this, how many corporations and even churches 10 years ago trotted out their 2020 vision, you know? Like the year 2020 is coming up. This sounds kind of cute. It's our 2020 vision. These are all the things that are gonna come about in the year 2020. And then all of a sudden, the plans get destroyed. See, your sense of control is an illusion and deep down inside, you know it. 
say, I don't, Jake, I don't want to think about that. That kind of makes me feel tight in the chest. It makes my palms start to feel sweaty a little bit. I don't want to think about that at all. And you know why? It may be, it just might be because we have learned, we have taught ourselves to emulate these people that he's talking about and to actually leave God out of the calculations that we make about the future. Amen, Jake. That does happen. <laughs> Friends, if you're anxious about the future, there's a right way and a wrong way to deal with that. The arrogant will trick themselves into thinking they have wrestled the future into their control. They're smug, but the wise leave it to the Lord. They say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, let's just take a minute to talk about what that means, because I don't want you to leave this room with the notion that what Jesus expects you to do is to think about the future with this sense of passive resignation, like whatever happens is completely out of my control. I'm not going to make any plans at all. That's not what he's saying. If the Lord wills, what does that mean? There's a lot of scripture uh, that talks about this and, and, and how we should think about the future, but I'll just mention one passage in particular. Write this down. Think about, for example, the 90th Psalm, Psalm 90. Psalm 90, it's the only Psalm written by Moses, and it's worth going back to again and again. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. And we really don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but let me just give you a brief summary. Moses begins in this Psalm by observing that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He never had a beginning and he'll never had an ending. From God have an ending. God's perspective from his perspective a thousand years is like a day the future is an open book that's where God lives by contrast all of us we have just a short time he says all of us our lives they're like a watch in the night they're over in just a matter of minutes just a moment and yet by the end of the psalm Moses prays this prayer God establish the work of our hands so what do we do about that? How can we have any hope that the everlasting God would take my short fleeting life and make it mean something and actually establish the, the steps that I take and make them significant when I'm off the scene? Moses says, Lord, teach us to number our days. Help us to remember that we have a limited time here on earth that, that, that will be accountable to you. Number your days, in other words. Think about how different that is from the way that we typically live. Moses is not saying you only live once. Nor is he even saying to live the next five minutes as if they were your last. He's saying number your days. Remember, eternity stretches out in front of us like a never-ending tapestry, but the days of our life, they're like this little thread on that tapestry. And so in order for us to, 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 to have a meaningful life, we've got to remember that God's doing something unlimited and infinite, but my life is finite and limited. So remember to number your days and invest them in something that's going to last long into the future. Invest in something that will be here when you're gone. Think of it this way. Uh, sometimes we treat our lives like a factory. You know, you've got these inputs and these outputs, and in a matter of minutes or hours or maybe weeks, we want to put some inputs into that factory and get a desired output, and that's the way we make decisions. Some people are wiser than that. They don't have a factory. They think of life more like a field. They're patient. They go out into the field, and they plow the field, and they kind of get the ground ready, and then they plant uh, crops, and then they wait patiently for a few weeks for those crops to, to come up. But the Bible actually teaches a greater wisdom even than that. 
You're not managing a factory. You're not even planting crops in a field. It's much more like you're, you're the owner, the steward of a farm, an entire farm. How does a farmer think? I've never been one. Some of you have been there, so you could tell us better than, than I could. But it seems to me that a farmer does not think in terms of days or even years. A farmer thinks in terms of decades. He's not just growing crops. He's cultivating soil. He is managing land. And that's the way that James asks us to think about the future. You are the steward of a life that belongs to your good father. He is doing something that you cannot begin to fathom, and he started it before you got here, and he will continue it after you're gone. And so if you want to be a part of it, you've got to number your days. He's not asking you to fret about the future, but how about this? Do you pray about it? I mean, do you ask God to guide your plans and direct your your paths? Some of you have a decision that's a really big decision in front of you. Maybe you're the type of person that's sort of licking your chops as you see that plan come together. Or maybe you're tossing and turning because you worry about what the future holds. But let me ask you this. Have you so much as mentioned this decision to the Lord in prayer? Have you sought the godly counsel of people who walk with him and understand his word? Have you given God the space to weigh in on the person that you're dating? On the college you're planning to attend? On the money you're about to borrow? On the job you're thinking about applying for? On the move to another state? On the ministry position you've been offered? On whether or not you're going to buy that insurance? Like, have you asked him? What I mean is, Don't be a hog. Don't be that kind of person who's so smug that leaves God out of the calculations for the future. Why? Well, because hogs get slaughtered. So commit your way unto the Lord. James reminds us that hogs get slaughtered because of their smugness, but notice with me in the second place that hogs get slaughtered because of their stupidity. Because of their stupidity. Look with me. At chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, what I mean is that these uh, arrogant fat cats that James addresses for our benefit have stupidly chosen to leave God out of their consideration of wealth and money and possessions. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Like how do you really feel, James? Wow. Notice that the future of the arrogant rich is predetermined by the folly of their investment in this world's goods. They live their entire life to pile up treasure, and the day is swiftly coming when that treasure will rot. And you know what it's called when all of your energies are devoted to storing up wealth that you can't take with you when you leave this world. You know what that's called? Stupid. It is not smart. It's, it's foolish for you to spend your whole life working for money and storing up treasure and fretting over riches and hoarding wealth when at the end of your life, you will leave it behind. Hogs get slaughtered. And there's a hog. He's happily getting fatter and fatter and fatter until one day, ching, that's it. So let me underscore again, this is not written for some rich guy you don't know. It's written for you and for me. Whether you live in a multi-million dollar mansion or you're the 
You're, you're on the ramen noodle budget. Most of us have been there. This is about your values. It's about what you worship. It's about what you make your life all about. Some of you literally think that the one thing, be honest, you literally think the one thing that is missing from your life, the one thing that would make everything come together, the one thing that would make you happy is if you had more money in your bank account. And what James is saying is, that's stupid. That's foolish. Just think about the wealthy people of the world. Do you really think they're that much happier than everybody else? Or how about this? 10,000 years from now, do you think they'll be that much happier than anybody else? Because by virtue of the fact that they were rich. James says, come now, you rich. That means get a clue. And then he points out some things about money that every follower of Jesus ought to know. First of all, it's not smart to put all of your trust in money because money isn't going to last. Money isn't going to last. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. What that means is there's not a single financial investment that you can make that will be accessible to you after you die. You work, you accumulate wealth, and you can either spend it, or you can give it away, or you can save it up and leave it with somebody else when you're gone. That's it. Do not stupidly trust in money because money doesn't last. Secondly, notice that the benefits of wealth will actually decay over time. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You know what I'm talking about. You remember as a kid, you started to get a little bit of money, allowance or maybe birthday money or something like that, or you mowed a few lawns, and you start saving up for those new shoes, or more recently, that tablet. Uh, or the dirt bike, or the car, or whatever it is, and you think about it when you're falling asleep at night. You daydream about all the ways your life will be better when you get it. Then finally, it's yours. And life is going to be great. And for about three or four days, it really is. And then after that, it starts to lose its luster. Wealth won't last, but even in this life, its benefits decay. Thirdly, though, consider the cost to the wealthy and how high it is. Did you catch verse 3? The corrosion of your wealth will eat your flesh like fire. Now, in the direct sense, here's what James seems to be saying. He seems to be saying that their wealth, those who trust in their wealth, that very wealth will serve as evidence in their judgment, a judgment that ends in hell itself. How sobering. But friends, listen to me, even now, wealth comes at a cost. And those of you to whom God has entrusted a little bit of money, you understand that this is the case. Wealth is a stewardship, and the pressure to steward it well is constant. Not only that, but the wealthy are often isolated from their neighbors and even their family members. Think about people who win the lottery. You, you know what happens to most people who win the lottery? They lose it all within a few years, and then before you know it, uh, they've lost all their friends and family in the process as well. See, this is one of the reasons why the writer to the Hebrews commands us, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So let me ask you a question, friends, this morning. Does the way that you earn your money, the way that you spend your money, the way that you borrow money, the way that you think about money, 
save it, give it away. Does that reflect Jesus, that Jesus' promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is precious to you? Has it really taken room in your heart? If what you have is Jesus, then be content with what you have. Do not let the world seduce you into thinking that you need more stuff. Like, do you have clothing? Do you have shelter? Do you have enough food to survive? I mean, looking around the room, okay, I'm going to be nice. (laughs) But no, living in the country where we live, in the age in which we live, if you decide to work a little bit, the chances are good that you have all three of those things. And I get it. Your parents owned a home by age 30 and you don't yet. Your friends from high school just earned a graduate degree and you can't even afford to finish college. The AC in your car doesn't work. You have to work at least 10 hours of overtime a week in order to make ends meet. And I get that all of that stuff gets old. But your Father in heaven knows what you need. Sometimes we're like, we're like a, a bratty 10-year-old. 10-year-olds, no offense. <laughs> not, not like the ones in this room today. But, you know, a, a kid who sulks in her bedroom because mom and dad won't buy her a cell phone. They're so mean. And they, they're doing what they're doing because they love their daughter. And by the way, they don't owe her an explanation. But there she sits and she's thinking, man, why are my parents like this? They are so mean. And friends, here's what we do. We do the same thing to our Heavenly Father. And he's completely 100% good and flawless and perfect. And he doesn't owe us an explanation. And he gives us exactly what we need. Folks, that's... That attitude toward the Lord, God, give me more, that's foolish. A wise person recognizes that Jesus is enough, but a hog is going to get slaughtered. Hogs get slaughtered because of their smugness. They leave God out of their consideration of the future. They get slaughtered because of their stupidity. They leave God out of their calculations on the value of wealth. But thirdly, notice with me, hogs get slaughtered because of their savagery, because of their savagery. Can you imagine standing before God in the final assize and hearing the words of verses four through six of chapter five? Behold, the wages of your laborers, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Look at the results of this hog mentality, so obsessed with riches and luxury and present pleasure that there is no concern whatsoever left over for for the neighbor. They're smug because they leave God out of their consideration of the future. They're stupid because they leave God out of their consideration of wealth and they engage in savagery when they leave God out of their consideration of the value of their neighbor. And the reckoning will come the day when, like Cain, they will learn that the voice of their brother's blood cries to the heavens from the ground. 
Uh, Notice as well that while these fictional merchants at the end of chapter 4 are condemned because of what they did, the rich landowners described in chapter 5 are condemned for doing nothing. Their employees are starving and they're fainting in the fields and instead of intervening, instead of rescuing, instead of giving each man his due, they sit back and they take another sip of tea. They just don't care. If this doesn't describe a major cultural current in our nation today, then I don't know what does. We care less and less and less and less about our neighbor and his children. This is not a matter of partisan politics. It is a virulent infection that has festered in every part of our society and on every rung of the social ladder. We just don't care about the other guy. The powerful bicker and argue about what the future is of the poor and the vulnerable. One group wants to deny the problems of society altogether. The other group wants to give away other people's money in order to fix those problems. One group couldn't care less about their neighbor on the other side of the world. The other group couldn't care less about their neighbor in the womb. And I I am not trying to say that these debates don't matter. I have opinions about them just like all of you. What I'm saying, though, is that we are meant, we're not meant to hold this passage up as like a, a mirror to shine in the other guy's eye. We're meant to hold up that mirror to ourselves. We're meant to ask, if I were to stand before the Lord and my vulnerable neighbors were called as witnesses, would they testify for me or against me? Is it possible that I have left God out of the way that I think about my neighbor? This is how a hog thinks. Eat, eat, eat. If anybody stands in my way, I'm just going to mow them down. Who cares about their value to God? They're in my way. By the way, I, I realize some of you may be a little skeptical about Christianity. You're here, you're politely listening, but deep down inside you have a lot of questions and you really are just not sure. And I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're listening One of the things I would encourage you to do is open your Bible and just consider the depths of the ethical goodness of God that you find in this book. Justice for working people is not a modern concept, nor is it a secular ideology. Sometimes I think even we as Christians forget where these ideas come from originally. It's a very ancient concept, and I would argue that the only place in the history of the world where you can find a fully formed notion of justice for the poor is in the pages of the Bible. It is as old as the oldest parts of Scripture. Consider Leviticus uh, chapter 19, for example. This is the Old Testament law. Uh, It's utterly unique among the nations of the ancient Near East. Here's what Moses says in Leviticus 19. You shall not oppress the poor or rob him the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning but why is that it's because those guys who are working out in your field are so poor that they only have enough for every day and he was about to go to dollar general to pick up the loaf of bread on the way home so don't hold his wages back till the morning give him his wages today Moses goes on, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. In another place, he says, you shall not pervert the justice due your poor in his lawsuit. 
In other words, there are times when society as a whole owes something in the plan of God to the poor neighbor. Or consider the ethics of Job expressed in Job chapter 31. Job says, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? See, what these passages illustrate is that thousands of years ago, God has been holding the wealthy and the powerful to account for the way that they treat their employees or their servants and the way that they treat the poor and the vulnerable. You see, God isn't impressed with the credentials or the amount of money in your bank account or the clothes that you wear or your last name or your title or your position. He fashioned each and every person in the womb and he values each and every person as created in his own image. He doesn't care what language you speak or what color your skin or where, you're lo- where you live. Each person, he knows our value. Or I'll go even further. Think about the example of Jesus of Nazareth. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Friends, what I mean to say is that if you decide to trust in God, if you begin to follow Jesus, you are following a person who loved the weak and the vulnerable before it was cool, who gave his life to save not just the important and the beautiful people, but all people. Contrast that with what you find in the world. The world doesn't care about the the poor and the vulnerable. Look past all the cliches and all the sound bites. Every once in a while, you get a revealing moment. You remember last year, this is a little bit of a cheap shot, but I think it's warranted. You remember last year when all the celebrities got together and they did this literally and figuratively tone-deaf version of John Lennon's Imagine as their gift to the world? Imagine there's no heaven. Yeah, like it must be nice for you living in your beachside mansion cloistered from danger while the rest of the world burns. And, And what was so revealing about that disaster was that they literally felt like they were being compassionate when they put it out the door. You can tell. That is how twisted our world is. See, when the chips are down, if you are looking for compassion, you will not find it in the world. You've got to go to Jesus Christ. Not those who think Jesus is irrelevant. Not the ones who trade in Christ's name in order to get a profit for themselves. But the Jesus we encounter in Scripture, you can trust him. And for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, James offers up this example, these scorching words of judgment, so that we might learn not to envy or to emulate these arrogant people. Don't be a hog. Love your neighbor. So here's the diagnostic question. Does the way that you handle wealth, both in your work and in your personal life, reflect the biblical idea that human beings are more valuable than what is in your wallet? Let me ask that again. Does the way that you handle wealth, both in your work and in your personal life, reflect the biblical idea that human beings are more valuable than what is in your wallet? 
How does the love of God in Christ impact the way that you treat the fast food worker who gave you the wrong change? Or the, 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 the process of figuring out insurance coverage for your employees? Or the way that you handle downsizing and restructuring? You say, Jake, sometimes when you're a leader, difficult decisions need to be made, and this is just reality. Yes, of course, you are absolutely right. But everybody knows that there's a difference between the stingy Scrooges of the world who step on people and the compassionate and visionary leaders who care about people. You, you can't always choose your circumstances, but you can certainly choose your attitude. Do us all a favor. If you're going to be the type of person who swindles people out of what they're owed just because you can, if you're going to be the type of person who hires contractors and then tries to wiggle away when the bill comes due, or the type of business owner that tries to pull a fast one with your customers, if you're going to leave God out of the way that you think about your neighbor, then stop telling people that you are a Christian because Jesus has nothing to do with any of that. When a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When the rich fool gets called out, all of us have a chance to learn real wisdom. James is calling out the hogs. He's calling them to account, and we all get to listen in and learn that they get slaughtered because they're smug. They leave God out of how they think about the future. They're stupid. They leave God out when they think about wealth. They're savage. They leave God out when they think about their neighbor. So don't go that way. Don't be a hog. If God's given you wealth, I think that's true for all of us to one degree or another. That's wonderful. What a, what a fantastic tool for you to serve your neighbor and glorify the Lord. If God's walking you through a season of tightening the belt, then praise the Lord. What an opportunity for you to grow in your trust of him and in your relationship with him. Both situations are in some ways a blessing and both situations are in some ways a trial. And whether you fall into one category or another, be on guard, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Would you pray with me now? Father, that peace is what we ask for, the peace that comes from delighting in you. Lord, I pray that we would not be deceived when it comes to our future. I pray that we would not be deceived when it comes to the value of wealth and possessions, that we would not be deceived when it comes to the value of our neighbor. But God, I pray that you would make us like Jesus. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.